Section five of Stories from the Detectives Album by Wife Wanda, also known as Mary Fortune. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. I'll be hung for you yet. The girl was perhaps twelve, and she was busily engaged in gathering a great heap of kindling wood on the green hillside. She was barefooted, yet intelligent looking, and every now and then stopped her feet among the tangled grass and undergrowth to look down the hill where the smoke of a cottage ascended. She looked upon a scene of unmitigated Australian beauty. It was in the vicinity of a township, green, in young February, with flushing vines. On the opposite side of the valley, in which the small scattered township lay, a great mountain reared his tree-clad height proudly, and cast his dark shadow on the pretty village when he put on his evening garb. The cottage, toward which the girl's regards were bent, faced the verdurous mountain, and was sheltered by the hill on which she stood. It was a little house of weatherboard and slabs, and had once shone prettily in a robe of pure white paint. But the hard rains of many winters had left the paint scarcely a memory of the past. The small windows were broken and stuffed with rags, and there was, altogether, a desolate and most dreary look about the untidy garden and filthy yard, for which the future paragraphs of this story may certainly account. When a great heap of the dry sticks and leaves, and bits of time-bleached bark, with which the hill abounded, had been collected, the girl sat down, and, clasping her thin, sunburned arms over her slightly clad, ragged knees, fixed her great grey eyes dreamily on the opposite mountain. "'How I should like to live up there,' she murmured, as she often did when she was alone, far away from noise and quarrelling, and where there were no public houses. Strange wish for one so young, was it not? What could a girl of twelve have to do with noise and quarrelling and public houses? Suddenly the sound of voices below her started the girl to her feet, and you could have seen by the flush that mounted up hotly to the weather-beaten yet handsome face of the child how deeply she was interested in the scene she gazed upon. From the cottage below the figure of a woman had emerged, with a lad clutched in her strong hand. Her voice was loud, her face was red, and her garments untidy. The sound of blows could be heard distinctly, and they seemed to fall on the girl's heart, for she clasped her hands over her ears to dull them. But all at once, as she saw the boy escape the woman's grasp, and, with a little terrier yelping before him, dart up the hill toward her, she fell behind her bundle of kindling wood as if to hide, and listen to the sound of scrambling feet and panting breath that rapidly neared her. "'Oh, Bob!' she cried as the boy fell upon the grass beside her. "'Has she hurt you so badly?' Bob brushed the dripping blood from his broad, intelligent forehead, and drew the little sympathetic terrier to his side with the other brown hand. "'I wish she had killed me,' he cried impetuously. "'I wish I was dead. If it wasn't for Topsy and you, Dolly—' I would throw myself down Barker's shaft in an hour. Oh, Bob, don't! And Dolly's hand stole into her brother's as she wiped the blood off his face with her tattered skirt. I can't stand it, Dolly, and I won't no longer. Other girls and boys have fathers and mothers. Look at us. When Baby was bored and we used to come up the hill with him and see his little funny winking eyes watching Topsy jumping about, I thought there would be some peace. But you know he was killed too by it. "'Our poor little brother, and I will stand it no longer. "'He was only buried yesterday, and look at that.' "'That was the again-gathering blood "'that he dashed from his flushed face. "'What was it, Bob? 
I was tired waiting for you. Was father home? No. You know he took his dinner with him this morning. What was it, doll? What a stupid you must be to ask. It was beer, of course. She wanted me to go over to Comstock's for more, and I wouldn't. And I never will again. Never. So I tell you I won't stand it. And, Dolly, you'll have to do without me until I'm a big boy and have earned some money, and I can have you to come with me, for I'm going to Bolt this very night. Dolly lifted her tear-stained face and stared at Bob with terror-stricken wonder. Bolt? Run away from father and mother and me and Topsy? Why, Bob, how could you? How could you? And the only half-subdued tears burst forth afresh. You talk of father and mother, the boy replied angrily as he rose to his feet. Do you forget that your father is not mine? Mother? I have no mother. Can you call her mother? I shan't forget you, Dolly. And as for Topsy, poor little Topsy shall go with me. The patient little creature, who, in spite of kicks and cuffs from the elder members of the wretched home, was plump and glossy, jumped proudly round his young master as he heard the well-known name, while Bob went down on his knees to clasp his honest arms around his weeping sister. "'Don't cry me more, darling doll. Just you wait and see what a big fellow I'll come back soon, and what fine wages I will earn to keep you. Just remember, I'm fourteen years old tomorrow, and will be a man before you know where you are. Mr. Wright says I can earn an honest living anywhere.' You would believe Mr. Wright had you seen the tall, strong lad with his honest, open face and beaming eye as he rose and gently helped his sister to her feet. Let's go home, doll. I think she is asleep, and I want to go and speak to Mr. Wright before she wakens. Lifting the bundle of kindling wood as he spoke, the lad moved down the hill, followed by Dolly. One would think the very terrier knew of the necessity for silence as he followed softly in their wake, slinking back altogether as they came close to the wretched cottage. Wretched indeed, for it was environed with filth, even in the pure air that blew down upon it from the mountain. Into the gutter at the back were accustomed to be promiscuously thrown all the waste of a reckless home where a besotted head presided. Words would fail me to describe the debris that surrounded the back entrance and made foul every breath drawn in its vicinity. Old boots, old stockings, old rags of every description mingled with rusty tools and dirty pots and bones and bottles only too prominent while the wretched struggling vegetation of what had once been a thriving garden evinced the utter neglect of every useful industry a shudder passed over the boy's frame as he deposited his sticks on a wet heap of refuse and chips and softly entered the kitchen the dinner dishes still lay upon the table with the cat holding high revel among them the fire was out, with a great heap of white ashes littering the greasy hearth. On one side of the dirty window, a dirty tub stood upon a stool with a heap of half-washed rags in its soiled water. The washing had been abandoned in its very earliest stages. Where was the washerwoman? Dolly peeped into the untidy, unseemly bedroom, and saw her stepmother as she had too often seen her before. Mrs. Kemp was lying on the outside of her unmade bed in all the abandonment of filthy intoxication. She was a bloated woman of about fifty, and the soiled and torn dress she wore was black, and made with a little train that draggled on the floor as she lay. Dolly sighed a little, and then went out to kindle the fire and gather the dishes together in a rusty tin dish. When she had done so much, 
she looked over toward the mountain, and saw Bob making his way quickly up the track toward Mr. Wright's, with little Topsy bounding before him. It was evening, and the sun had dipped behind the top of the mountain. Across the ascending path, the tall trees were casting long shadows from a rift through which the sun broke beyond the spur of the hill. In this streak of soft sunlight, to the right of the track, stood the humble slab hut of a woodcutter, and in front of it, feeding a shaggy dog, was a tall old man with white hair and bowed shoulders. At the boy's quick approach, the shaggy dog barked loudly, but soon recognising friends, greeted joyfully both Topsy and his master, while the old woodcutter smiled pleasantly at the lad. "'Hello, Bob. Is this you? I didn't think to see you so late in the day as this. And I had no notion of being here now till an hour ago, Mr. Wright, but what I always expected has come at last.' I'm going to bolt tonight, sir, and I couldn't go without telling you. What has happened, my boy? the old man asked gravely, as he laid his hand on Bob's shoulder. Oh, the old thing, sir. She insisted on me going for beer, and I refused, as I promised my stepfather I would. Then she beat me till she fell. I am determined to go. What will Kemp say? He will not care. You know he is getting worse and worse every day himself. He spends most of his time at Comstock's when he's not at work, and when he comes home, the rows are awful. You know the baby is dead, Mr. Wright. He was buried yesterday, and the boy's eyes filled with tears, which he was ashamed of, and which he turned away to hide. Yes, I heard it. And I heard too, Bob, that she let it fall and killed it. It's true, sir, and I must go, for if I don't get back before she wakes, she'll try to kill me too. These are hard words, my lad. I know, I know, but what can I do? And at last the boy burst into a passion of sobs and tears. If I stay here, they will neither let me work or go to school, and I will get as wicked as themselves. Sometimes I get so angry that I feel as if I could strike her. And then there's poor Dolly. I must get work and take her away. Where do you think of shaping for, my lad? "'To Pleasant Joe's, Mr. Wright. "'You know he was camped for a long time upon the hill behind us, "'and he was very good to me. "'He's taken up a selection at Tarrasome Creek, "'and I know he'll give me work if he can.' "'Well, God bless you, my boy, "'and remember that you'll never thrive without his blessing, "'which you can only get by doing right. "'It's very hard on you to be homeless through a parent's folly. "'But try, for all that, to feel pity for your poor mother, "'bad as she is.' I do pity her. If I could do her good, I would stop through all. But she won't let me. Be kind to poor Dolly when you can, Mr. Wright, won't you? And write sometimes, won't you? I'm no great fist at the pen, Bob, my boy, but I'll do better than write. If anything goes wrong, I'll walk over to the creek and see you. It's only a matter of twenty miles by the cross track. Yes, sir. I know the track well, and it's full moon. Good-bye, sir. "'Wait a bit, lad, wait a bit.' And the old man drew from his pocket a soiled chamois bag tied with a bit of whipcord. "'You know it's little I have to give you, but your own father could not have been more willing to share with you. Your boots are not fit to tramp in, and the road's rough over the mountain. Go down to the store tonight and buy yourself a good strong pair of lace-ups and a warm scarf. Take it, lad, take it,' as the boy drew back from the offered little pile of shillings. "'You would vex me if you refused.' and you know you can save up and pay me when I come over to see you. 
God be with thee, lad. And the good old man turned suddenly into his hut and shut the door behind him. Bob stood still and looked at the money pressed into his hand, then down at his worn boots, and then at the closed door between him and his friend. The lad's generous heart swelled with emotion, but he judged the kindly action justly, and turned his face homeward, ran down the track with the money firmly gripped in his hand. The light was fading quickly, and as soon as he had come within sight of his wretched home, his heart beat more easily, as he saw it still lightless, for he knew if his unfortunate mother was awake, a candle would have illuminated the painless window. "'I'll have time to get the boots,' the lad thought, as he turned toward the store, "'and if I don't meet father, all will be right.' He peeped anxiously into the bar of the public house as he passed, and breathed more freely as he saw no Kemp there, and then he ran into the store as though he was doing wrong. Ten minutes after, he emerged with a little parcel in his hand, and ran safely up to the brow of the hill behind the cottage, where he hid his treasure in a tuft of grass, and then bounded down the hill to his desolate home. Dolly was standing in the darkened door as he reached it, and greeted him joyfully, but in a low voice. "'Is mother not awake yet, Doll?' "'No, and I'm afraid to waken her, Bob. But tea's all ready. Did you see father?' she asked anxiously. "'No, he's not at Comstock's,' and the poor girl gave a sigh of relief. "'I wish I dare waken her,' she said. "'But I'm afraid.' A pitiful state of affairs this, but, alas, there are, unfortunately, too many such homes, even in vine-growing Victoria. Bob rapidly related to her all about his visit to write the woodcutter, and its results, and then he whispered, "'I think I'll venture to waken poor mother, and save her a row if father comes home. If she does hammer me, it will be the last time, and I can stand it once more.' He turned into the dark kitchen and struck a light. While the match was burning bluely up, and the greasy wick of the poor tallow candle catching light faintly, the poor lad's heart was full to bursting. After all, she was his mother, besotted and almost lost to womanhood though she was. She had once been far different, even in the lad's memory, and now he was leaving home, perhaps never to see her again. Would she care when he was gone? With the candle in his hand he entered the room where the woman's loud snores resounded stertorously. She lay in the heavy sleep of deep intoxication, with the hand that had struck him last hanging, swollen, over the bed. The boy bent and kissed the hand softly, and then he gazed for a moment into the unconscious face. It was bloated and red, and growing shapeless, yet there still remained traces of feminine beauty. Her hair was dark and wavy, in spite of its tangled disorder, and the hidden bleared eyes had once been as brightly grey as Bob's own. A bystander would even then have caught a likeness in the sleeping face to the open, handsome countenance of the boy. But it was such a likeness as a fallen angel must have borne, after his dark rebellion against his Maker, to the pure spirit he had represented in the forever lost paradise of God. "'Mother! Mother! Awake!' the lad whispered softly in her ear as he shook her gently. "'Father will soon be home. Do waken up.' Perhaps her sleep was out, or perhaps it was the light of the candle in her eyes, but the woman opened her eyes suddenly, and fixed them upon her son with that dazed, stupid look of inquiry which is often seen in the face of the awaking drunkard. Soon she recognised the face and lifted her hand suddenly to strike, but as Bob drew back from the helpless blow, 
a something in his face struck even her obtuse vision, and she drew back her hand suddenly. Was there, could there be any hidden communion between the minds of this lost mother and her innocent child, or what feeling dictated the softened look and tone? "'What is the matter? Did I hurt you that time?' "'Oh, no, only a little, mother. But father will soon be home, and I was afraid he would catch you in bed.' "'Curse him!' she cried with a total revulsion of feeling, and with a string of more revolting anathemas. "'Who is John Kemp that I should slave myself to death for him? Let him wait on himself, as many a better man has before him. I have a good mind to knock you down for rousing me out of the only comfortable sleep I have had this month of Sundays. Put the candle down and clear out of this.' She staggered to her feet, however, and, with open and disordered dress, lifted the lid of a box that stood near her bed. There was a bottle there, the contents of which were sweet to the diseased palate of the hapless woman, and when she went out to the kitchen it was with a staggering gait that swayed the grease from the unsteady candle in broad drops over her trailing and torn skirt. Bob and Dolly were both standing at the table as she emerged from her bedroom in the manner I have described. Aware, by bitter experience, how little hope there was of a peaceful supper, the two children were seizing such viands as the table afforded. Bob had hurriedly stuffed some bread and meat into the pocket of his jacket, in hasty anticipation of his journey, and as well as he could in the darkness, when a well-known and dreaded footstep crossed the threshold. John Kemp was a low-sized, dark-complexioned man of fifty, with a vicious light in his deep-set eyes, and a slouching way of walking with his head bent forward. As he entered the door and saw the tottering figure of his wife, he stopped short, and his hard-knotted hands clenched fiercely against each other. Mrs. Kemp turned an angry face toward the doorway, and, in an effort to set the candle on the table, dropped it, and left the room in darkness. Amid the noise of breaking crockery and foul language, the brother and sister fled into the garden. "'I must go, doll. I must go,' Bob cried. "'If he catches sight of me, I won't get another chance. Goodbye, Dolly, darling.' "'And don't forget, Mr. Wright. He will tell you about me. Don't cry, dear. I'll soon be back.' He kissed the sobbing girl fondly, and as the light once more broke through the open door, he darted up the hill with panting yet light steps. But little Topsy was before him on the summit. He had snatched his parcel from the grass as he passed, and paused now to look back upon the house he had deserted. The moon was behind him, round and pale, and the lad's long shadow fell upon the grass before him. The sweet silence of a calm and beautiful night was broken only by the loud and fearful quarrelling in the cottage he had left. The light still streamed from the open door, and, as he watched longingly, he saw his mother pass it toward her room again. Poor Bob heaved a great sigh and turned away. When should he see his mother again? If fear had not lent wings to his feet and strength to his young heart, he would have sat down there on the brow of the hill, and wept for his despised home and his forsaken mother. But he daren't go back now, certain as he was of a terrible beating, should poor Dolly have been obliged to divulge his intention of running away. Still, he thought regrettingly of his humble bed, when he looked forward to the lonely and dark track he was entering. Ah, poor Bob, you are not the first who has bitterly realised, when only too late, what it is to be lonely and homeless. Once upon the path, however, with the soft moonbeams filtering through the whispering branches, 
and little Topsy joyously trotting along by his side, or bounding aside in the bush to sniff suspiciously at some hollow log where the bandicoot might dwell peacefully, the lad's spirits rose, and his heart seemed lifted of a heavy weight. How inexpressibly quiet was this lonely bush, and how sweet were the whispering leaves of the old trees! If one could live for ever in such a place with no one to scold or row, and only Dolly to talk to, and Topsy to hunt possums and kangaroo rats with, how nice it would be! Something like these were the poor boy's thoughts as he trudged along, though unanalyzed and unarranged. When Bob had gone a couple of miles, he sat down and put on his new boots. It was too warm for his woolen scarf, so he tied it round his waist, and fastened the old boots carefully to it, in his want of worldly goods, valuing even these tattered bits of leather with their old twine laces. Then he made himself snug on the log, and taking out his supper, began to eat and share with the eager Topsy. He was not afraid of his stepfather's pursuit now, for he remembered that Dolly did not know his destination, so could not, even with the worst abuse, disclose where he had gone. He was a brave boy, our Bob. Never once on the long road did he shrink or falter. Once, when the way was more than half past, he turned aside, and curling himself up snugly against a log, with Topsy by his side, he slept the sleep of strong youth and fatigue. When he woke, the grey dawn was struggling against the dying moon, and, refreshed as a young giant, he sprang to his feet, and having shared his last crust with the joyous sparking Topsy, went on his way rejoicing. Now it was that he more especially remembered his old friend the woodcutter. As the birds began, one by one, to awake and twitter softly, he believed they were returning thanks to the great giver of life for a new morning to rejoice in and be happy. It recurred to him with a sensation of remorse that while Dolly had always simply bent her knees by her poor bed, ere she hurriedly put on her ragged clothing, he had far more frequently bounded out, half-dressed, to listen to the magpies gurgling as they walked and strutted on the dewy grass, or watch the rising sun light up the face of the grand mountain opposite his lost home. "'Poor doll,' he thought. "'She will remember me when she says her prayers, and I will not forget mine again, and remember her.' Now was not that as much a prayer in the sight of the great Creator as if the boy had gone down on his knees and cried out his thoughts in well-chosen words? I think it was, and would rather trust in the benefit of such an aspiration than have the longest prayer said on my behalf by a drawling, solemn-visaged, white-robed parson from the grand old Gothic pulpit. It was breakfast-time when he at last reached the selection at Tarasum, and Pleasant Joe was so busy frying slices of mutton cut from a quarter which hung in the draught of a low-barked veranda that he did not hear the boy's approach. But soon the loud barking of a vigilant sheep-dog drew his attention, and the selector hastened to the door and threw up his hands in wonder as he recognised his visitor. "'My gracious me, Bob, is this yourself? Where in the name of all the saints did you drop from? Sure, and it's tired ye are, Bob, and little Topsy too.' "'Come inside, lad. Come inside and sit down. "'If you don't stop that noise, Jim, I'm sure, I'll kick you in your old carcage.' The pleasant face and beaming eyes that welcomed Bob did not look by any means as if they belonged to a man from whom any animal's carcage was in danger. And well Mr. Jim the collie knew it, as, instead of ceasing his noise, he only turned his attention to his master and barked more loudly at him. 
it was only when jim had been openly bribed by a chop from the hissing pan that he consented to be expelled and give bob a chance to tell his story he told it poor lad as he was eating the food which joe piled on his tin plate and while little topsy was paying his addresses to a fine cold bone extracted from joe's safe which was an old case slung from the rough rafters by some bits of stringy bark and that's the way they threaded jim a poor boy and you runned away to joe more power to you bob and the mother's no better nor kemp bad cess to him and right's advised ye eh well be aisy my lad while joe has a bit or a sup or an old bark roof yourself shall have the same work is it be dad it's lashins o that ye'll have anyhow isn't my back fairly broke with thryin to lift them logs without any man's help at all honest kindly-hearted pleasant joe leaving our bob safely housed in such happy quarters we must return to the home he had left for some time weeping dolly was afraid to return to the cottage and sat out in the garden listening to her father's bitter words and terrible threats but at length her own and brother's name called loudly and angrily started her to her feet and she entered the kitchen with trembling limbs and a pale tear-swollen face you lazy young wretch set to and clear up this broken crockery and do it sharp or there'll be two murders in this house instead of one is that rip bob gone to bed like his drunken mother for two pins i'd haul him out by the ears and mind you if he's not up to get my breakfast by cockcrow i'll choke him and leaving the poor child trying anxiously to repair the effect of his violence as best she might the wretched being stomped down to his favourite haunt at the bar of comstock's dolly's task accomplished as well as she could she took the candle into her stepmother's room and covered the sleeping woman with the bedclothes ere she crept to her own bed after blowing out the light and leaving the candle on the table where her father expected to find it on his return she shared with bob a little lean-to behind the house built so carelessly of slabs that there was scarcely two you could not have put your hand between the side of the house against which this frail erection was built was the only place close and draughtless but even in that there were chinks in the weatherboards against which the girl lay through which she could see streaks of light from the kitchen when a candle burned there the forsaken child crept to the side of bob's bed which was opposite her own and kneeling down laid her arms on the rough covering and her face upon her arms it was impossible to repress her tears as she felt that cold and empty bed and thought of the darling brother she had lost but oh how glad she was poor unselfish child that he was gone thinking of her father's awful face when he said there would be two murders in the house instead of one she rejoiced that bob had escaped ah john kemp did you dream that your idle words were prophetic and that your own child was thanking god humbly for her immolation as she knelt under the wretched roof you had desecrated and would yet more terribly desecrate in the early morning dolly was astir and made the fire and hung on the kettle as she kindled it with some of the bark she had gathered on the hillside and bob had carried home on the previous evening her tears fell so heavily on the weak flame as to threaten its extinction when again should she enjoy happy confidences with dear old bob with the fair pretence of gathering morning wood on the quiet hillside alas dolly never again until the everlasting morning breaks on the everlasting hills where is that lazy villain cried kemp 
as he stamped toward the door on his way to Comstock's for his morning draught of poison. "'Isn't he up yet? By the heaven above me, I'll drag him out quick!' And with a volley of vile oaths he dashed into the children's room and saw the empty bed. "'Where is he? Where is he, I say? If you don't tell me what he's up to, I'll shake the life out of you!' It would not be hard to do, for as he seized and shook the child roughly, she turned pale as a leaf and staggered like a reed. Something in her face struck the man. Had he, after all, some human feeling? And he loosened his grip and stared at her. "'What's the matter? Speak up. You're hiding something, doll. Where is your brother?' That word opened the fountain of the girl's half-broken heart, and her tears fell like rain. Amid sobs that seemed to rend her bosom, she forgot all but her grief at the loss of that darling brother. "'Oh, father!' she cried. "'Oh, father!' "'Bob's gone. He's never been in bed all night. Bob's bolted.' "'Bolted?' "'Yes, father. He's run away. Mother beat him, and he's gone away. We'll never see him again.' A slight noise behind Kemp made him look toward the bedroom door. Standing in it was his wife with her torn trailing skirt, dishevelled hair and unfastened gown, just as she had laid down on the previous night. The expression of deep, though evanescent, feeling he saw in the face of the woman had a most revolting effect on the unfeeling wretch. He burst into a harsh laugh. <laughs> "'That's the best news I've heard this ten years,' he cried. "'A blessed good riddance of bad rubbish. I say, missus, just you try your hand at giving me a hammering. Maybe I'd bolt, too. You'd like that, wouldn't you?' And he turned out of the door with an uncommonly pleasant, for him, expression on his face. If the loss of her son made any impression on Mrs. Kemp, she said nothing, and it must have been evinced in a firmer determination to drink than ever. Dolly was the messenger to Comstock's now, and many noticed how the sensitive girl felt the humiliation. Twice on such an errand she had met Wright, the old woodcutter, and wept as he patted her shoulder with an assurance that Bob was all right, and would come to take her away before she knew where she was. "'In the meantime, be a good girl, my dear,' he would add. Try to help Bob's mother and your father's wife, and never forget to say your prayers. So went on six comfortless weeks in drinking and quarrelling and bitter recrimination, until came at length one terrible night, long remembered in the neighbourhood of the mountain. Kemp had been drinking heavily and neglecting his work as a very natural consequence, and had been discharged by his employer. Instead of turning over a new leaf, his discharge only made him frantic, and while his credit lasted, more desperate in folly than ever. Matters were in this state when one day, toward afternoon, Mrs. Kemp sent Dolly down to Comstock's. "'Father is there,' said the girl pleadingly. "'I don't care if Satan is there,' was the retort angrily. "'What do I care for your father? I wish he was in... blank.' "'Go at once, you hussy, and if you value your bones, don't let the grass grow under them big dirty feet of yours.' Dolly went, for she dared not say no, but she was womanly enough to feel bitterly that taunt of the viragos about her poor bare feet. If they were big, she could not help it, and how could she keep them clean, paddling about the dirty house in the dirtier yard? Half a dozen times a day she had to encounter decently dressed girls on her way to Comstock's, who sneered at her tattered dress and bare feet, but if she was tattered and barefooted, whose fault was it? and bitterly the child clutched the bottle that she would like to have smashed to atoms against the stones at her feet. Poor, tried Dolly! 
Trembling, she slipped into the bar, for she guessed her father was there. She was not mistaken. Kemp was there in the centre of a noisy lot of men, himself the loudest and the noisiest of them all. When his eyes lighted on Dolly, his dark face deepened into a scowl, and the frightened child shrunk back. All at once, however, to her great surprise, a look of cunning hypocrisy replaced the anger in his visage, and he smiled grimly as Dolly hesitatingly placed the bottle before the landlord. "'Eh, Doll,' he said, "'is the old woman hard up for a drop, eh? Well, it's not often I shout for her, but she's been washing, and I don't mind for once. Landlord, fill it up at my expense,' and he dashed some coin upon the counter. Dolly went away wonderingly, for she had never before known her father to do such a thing. On the contrary, all his fierce invective and violent threats had been levelled against her stepmother's use of liquor. She gave Mrs. Kemp the bottle most reluctantly, for well, too well, she knew what would be the certain result. "'Was your beauty of a father there?' the woman asked. "'Yes, mother.' "'Ah, I'll be hung for that villain yet.' and she violently gesticulated her fist down toward the hotel. Hung for him yet. How Dolly pondered over the words she had so often heard from her poor father's lips. I'll be hung for you yet, he would hiss hoarsely between his teeth during their awful quarrels. I'll be hung for you yet. And the words somehow rang in Dolly's ears all the afternoon as she tried to finish some of the woman's half-done work. What a dreadful thing it must be to be hung. Somewhere she had seen a picture of a man hanging by his neck over the heads of a great crowd, and it now recurred to the child with a shudder. Hung! Oh, heavens! If her poor father should be hung, could she ever live to see or hear of it? Oh, no! Oh, no! Near the time of setting sun, Dolly went up the hill and sat down with her face toward the mountain, just on the spot where Bob and she used to sit when the morning wood had been gathered for, of course, it had happened as she knew and feared. Mrs. Kemp was dead asleep under the evil influence of her curse. Kemp had not been home all day. It was not his present wish to have any quarrel with his unfortunate wife. So poor Dolly went up the hill and sat down with her face to the grand old mountain and the low sun, to think of Bob and wonder if she should ever see him again. Dolly was changing fast, and every one of the pitying neighbours saw what the parents' eyes did not open to observe. She was growing thin and pale, and the large grey eyes were growing larger and brighter with each passing day. The girl missed her darling and only companion, and was lonely unto death. She was hopeless, too, as well as comfortless, and what unto young or old is a deadlier draught than that which is drank from the cup of despair. She sat so long there in her favourite attitude, with her hands clasped over her knees, and her eyes fixed dreamily on the darkening face of the beautiful mountain, that she started to find, when she looked down toward the cottage, a light in the doorway. With hasty feet the child ran lightly down the hill. She had prepared the evening meal before she left, so everything was ready for her father's supper. He did not, however, appear to have returned, for the supper was untouched. Who, then, had lit the candle, left that full bottle so very conspicuously on the table? The fact was that Kemp had returned. In the growing twilight he had slipped up the hill with that bottle hidden under his coat. He had supper in the hut of a mate, and now barely remained to place the bottle where his wife could see it, and light the candle that she might not fail to do so when she awoke. How thoughtful and how generous had John Kemp become all at once! 
Poor, patient Dolly sat on the doorstep till late, but no father came and no mother awoke. Cold and tired and chilled with the night air, she at last crept to bed and fell quickly asleep. No doubt the girl had fallen asleep with a nervous uneasiness of the burning candle and Mrs. Kemp's helpless condition, for she started at the least sound. Twice she awoke and peered through the crack near her bed, and the second time she saw her stepmother sitting by the table, pouring something out of that dreadful bottle with one hand, and holding some bread and meat in the other, which she appeared to be eating. Dolly lay down again with a helpless sigh, for what could she do, save ask the great God to help and pity her poor stepmother? A darker night never fell under the mountain. They were holding high carousel in Comstock's, but, as it was long after twelve, the doors were shut. There was not, however, a policeman nearer than three miles, and he was little likely to trouble them for any breach of the liquor laws, being a considerable law-breaker himself in that way. Kemp was the centre of a noisy lot in the bar parlour, but he was uncommonly quiet that night. At last, when the party were desperately engaged at car-playing for stakes they could ill afford to lose, he watched his opportunity and stole out, in hopes he should not be missed. Up the hill toward his wretched home he hastened, stumbling often in the darkness, yet more from excitement than anything else, for he had trod the path so often as to make every stone on it familiar to him. When he reached the cottage and paused at the still open door, he could hear the sound of his wife's loud breathing, so close to him that he wandered and peeped in before crossing the threshold. The sight John Kemp saw was a pitiful one. Yet, strange to say, he uttered a low chuckle of satisfaction. Mrs. Kemp had fallen from her chair and was lying on the dirty floor, which was of worn and uneven bricks. The candle was burning low, and the long wick flickered its uneven light over the upturned face and loose scattered hair lying across it. One hand was extended, and close to it lay the broken bottle, while the other was clasped on her breast. When, ten minutes after, John Kemp hastened down the hill, there was no light in that cottage, and strange gurgling sounds were breaking the silence of the darkness. The third time Dolly woke, it was at the sound of the wretched woman's fall, and she was rising in bed to get up and see if she could help to raise her, when she heard her father's foot on the floor. What passed during the next ten minutes, Dolly saw, as with parted lips and horror-stricken eyes, she peered through the chink. God in heaven help the child, cowering down in her wretched bed, with trembling limbs that she feared would betray her, and great drops of perspiration standing on her white face, she listened to the awful sounds in the pitchy darkness, a gasping, gurgling noise, with the sound of steel falling upon the bricks, and then such struggling of booted heels upon the hard floor. Dolly dared not move, she did not know her father had gone and every moment expected he would lean over her to see if she slept, or had, indeed, witnessed that deed. God in heaven help the child. He did help the innocent one. She fainted. They had not missed Kemp at Comstock's, so deeply were they interested in the result of their gambling. He sat down among them and joined in. If his hand trembled, no one observed it, and the drink was near. At last, his mate threw down his cards with an oath, and said he was done with it, that he was cleared out of every blessed sixpence. "'Never mind, old fellow,' Kemp said, as he also rose to his feet. "'I'll shout, and we'll go home. Better luck next time.' "'I'm blessed if I dare venture home,' cried the man, whose name was Widgeon. 
the missus would kick up such a row and i'm not fit to meet it i'll stay here till morning comstock wouldn't have you man come on up with me if you're afraid of your missus i'm not afraid of mine and you can have a nap on the sofa was that true john kemp if you really had no fear of your wife what made you tremble so that your very teeth chattered as you neared the door why when you reached it did you feign to pick up an axe that you had stumbled against and send widgeon inside to strike a light she's sure to be sound as a top and won't hear you he said yes there was no doubt about it mrs kemp was sound asleep and would not hear widgeon as he crossed the doorway and struck a match while it was slowly kindling he moved toward the table to look for the candle carefully shading the match with both hands as he went before he had time to know what he was doing he fell over some object on the floor at the sound of his fall kemp's heart seemed to stop suddenly and his feet to be rooted to the ground what the deuce exclaimed the man as he disentangled his feet and arose but he knew mrs kemp's habits and at once guessed that she lay on the floor in a state of intoxication he struck another match and lit the bit of candle which he then lifted and held over the prostrate woman the trembling kemp heard an exclamation and then widgeon's footsteps as he came to the door into which kemp feigned to be entering come outside i want to speak to you widgeon said pushing his acquaintance back come outside can't you speak inside kemp blustered i'm not henpecked like you come inside and say whatever you have to say widgeon drew the willing enough man back and spoke in a low tone i wonder who he was afraid would hear him I want to speak to you of the Mrs. Kemp. I'm afraid she's sick. Ha, ha, as if that was anything new, man. Yes, sick of beer or gin. Worse, Kemp, worse nor that. Pluck up now, mate, and bear it like a man. The Mrs. is dead. Dead, he repeated huskily. You're raven, Widgeon. She's only asleep. I've seen her like that often. Let me in, I say. I won't be held back. He did it well, we must own, as he rushed inside, and, seizing the dying candle, held it over the dead woman. If his hand trembled so that the unsteady flame flickered to and fro, who could wonder? And if he fell back against the wall, white and gasping, pray, what wonder? Was not his dead wife lying at his feet, weltering in her own blood? Widgeon looked round hastily, and lighted a fresh candle that lay on the dresser, and then he turned with ready sympathy to the bereaved husband, who still shrank, gasping against the wall. "'Go outside, John. This is no place for you. I would have prepared you a bit, but you wouldn't give me a chance.' Kemp permitted himself to be led into the cool night air, and seated himself on a stone not far from the door, while Widgeon returned to make a closer examination into the condition of the corpse. Mrs. Kemp was lying on her side, with the evident signs of a hard death in her attitude. Her head was thrown back, and her throat severed from ear to ear. It was an awful sight, and the man Widgeon shuddered as he hurried away from it. "'John, I'm going down to Comstock's,' he said, laying a hand on Kemp's shoulder. "'Come on.' "'No, I can't go,' Kemp replied. "'The girl's here.' "'Oh, aye, I forgot. "'Twould be bad if she wakened. "'Well, I shan't be long, and we'll bring up some of the chaps. "'Keep up a good heart, mate.' No sooner had the sound of Widgeon's footsteps down the hill ceased to be heard than Kemp rose hurriedly and went round the house to the back. He dared not go through the front, for
for he should then have been obliged to step over it. So he went round the back and into the little room where his child lay sleeping. Poor Dolly had hardly roused from her faint only to fall into a heavy sleep, peopled by terrible dreams, in which she moaned and muttered and struggled. Kemp knew that there was often a bit of candle in an old candlestick on the box that served as a table for the children, and, with a trembling hand, he struck a match and lit it. Then he turned a quick glance over his shoulder, ere he looked at the sleeping girl. Kemp was reassured. Dolly could not have slept so, had she suspected, much less known, what lay inside. But as he bent over her, and saw the damp face and white muttering lips, his face grew grey with fear. Even as the trembling of this awful fear entered his very heart, words broke in almost a scream from the girl's lips. "'I'll be hung for you yet! I'll be hung for you yet!' The young man staggered back as though he had received his death-blow, and the candle dropped from his hand. In the darkness that was now so terrible to him, he dared not remain, but he managed to stagger out and round the house again, and stand on the brow of the hill, where he might first hear the voices and steps of approaching companionship. What could the girl have meant? Whatever could she have meant? She was sound asleep, and she was dreaming just now, and she had often heard him utter the threat to the dead woman. But just now, what could she have meant? Was it possible she could have seen anything? Had the dying woman managed to call? But no, it was impossible. A timid, nervous child like that could never have lain down and slept after such a sight. He might reassure himself so far, but, after all, what had she meant? I'll be hung for you yet. Oh, heaven, what an awful fear, hitherto forgotten, grasped at that wretched man's heart, as he, for the first time, felt the danger of his position. If Dolly did know, if his life was at the mercy of a weak, timorous, conscientious child, he clutched at the band of his shirt nervously, as it seemed to choke him. But nonsense! He had planned all safely, and all would be well. Widgeon ran nearly all the way to Comstock's, forgetting, in the awful news he carried, the steep, stony nature of the path he trod. The company had not yet separated, and as he burst among them, his white, terror-stricken visage and trembling frame drew all attention to him. "'I say, Widgeon, what's the matter?' the landlord asked. "'Has the missus been beaten you, or have you met a ghost on the way home?' "'For heaven's sake, give me a drink!' he cried, and seized a glass pushed toward him by one of the men, which he drained at a gasp. "'The old woman has clawed Widgeon,' one bantered. "'I can see the marks on his face.' "'Don't chaff at such a time, mates,' cried Widgeon, as he set the glass down and wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. "'An awful thing has happened up at Kemp's. I went home with him to get a shakedown,' and we found Mrs. Kemp lying on the floor dead. Dead? Many voices cried in consternation. Yes, and the worst is, she's done it herself. Her throat was cut from one ear to the other, and the knife she did it with lying close up against her on the floor. Comstock, send a man for the police. We don't want to get into no trouble over it. And which of you will come with me to keep poor Kemp company? How did he take it? asked one of the volunteers. Very bad, poor chap. I wanted him to come down with me, but he wouldn't, as the girl might wake and be frightened. And so the men went up the hill to the man who stood out there, almost dazed in the darkness, yet with the sweet breath of night blowing over him from the grand old mountain, which yet he could not see. He could hear, though, voices in the whispering leaves and rustling grass, 
and every one of them said, I'll be hung for you yet. All the township was in an uproar early next, or, indeed, the same morning when day broke, at the quickly disseminated news, and it so happened that Wright, the woodcutter, was down to get a bit of tea and sugar for his breakfast, and was overwhelmed with trouble for his young friend Bob. I'll keep my word to him, he said to himself. I know Comstock will lend me his horse and spring cart, for he often gets my dray, and I'll go over to Tarrasome Creek and bring the lad back. He'd never forgive me if he didn't get a last look at his mother. By the time we get back, I dare say they will have put her right, and she won't be such a sight for the boy. God help him to look at. So, in less than an hour, the kind old man had left on his way to Pleasant Joe's. The buzz of many voices roused Dolly from the kind of lethargy in which she had lain, and she started up in the terror of half-remembrance. One glance through the boards showed her many faces, and one awful object yet lying among them on the floor, and, with a subdued cry, she bounded from her bed, and put on the few poor articles of attire which formed her whole dress. No one that saw her could doubt that the night's awful experience had nearly killed the child. Every joint trembled, and her face was of the hue of ashes. Her poor toilet completed, she fell upon her knees, helpless and wordless, by the side of Bob's bed, and, if any one thinks that her father in heaven did not hear the unspoken prayer for help in that child's heart, let him or her go to church and pray for themselves. In this attitude she was found by a neighbouring, kindly-hearted woman, who had come to remove her to her own home, and who, in much trepidation, Kemp had ushered into the little lean-to. "'Dolly, dear, get up,' the woman said softly. "'You are coming home with me. Get up, like a good girl.' Dolly raised her white face from Bob's bed, and looked at the speaker. In the glance, however, she saw her father's figure at the door, and with a cry buried her face once more in the bed. Kemp's face flushed hotly, but he controlled himself and spoke quietly. "'She's fretting for Bob yet, Mrs. Scanlon. She's always hanging about his bed. Let me speak to her by herself a bit, and she'll go quietly enough with you.' Following this hint, the woman left the room, and then Kemp's whole appearance changed. "'Get up out of that!' he whispered between his set teeth. "'Get up quick, or it'll be worse for you!' Dolly rose like a machine, and looked with such horror in his face that he felt as if the child's eyes were daggers aimed at his very life. But that very life was at stake now, and maybe at the mercy of this shrinking girl, and he must not quail. "'Look here,' he said in a horrible and significant tone. "'Look here, my girl. If you happen to know anything you hadn't ought to know, or happen to see anything you hadn't ought to see, You'd better keep your tongue quiet about it, or by I'll cut your throat too. Look at me and answer. Look at me, I say. She couldn't look at him, poor child. Not that she was afraid. She was past that. But that she saw last night, when she saw him. Instead of looking at him, therefore, she turned her face farther away. But insensibly, as the uppermost thought worked to her lip, she muttered softly, I'll be hanged for you yet. Kemp staggered back, astounded. "'The girl's mad!' he cried. "'She's mad by—' "'No, she's not. She's only dazed with grief,' said Mrs. Scanlon, as she marched past him and drew Dolly into the open air. "'She'll come with me now, Dolly dear, won't you?' As she passed her father, 
the girl cast one quick look up into his face and left him poor little helpless trembling girl though she was stupid with terror it was as though an accusing spirit had looked into his eyes with horror and loathing beyond expression and that spirit the spirit of the murdered woman for dolly had her mother's eyes in common with bob leaving this painful scene follow me now to good old wright's destination and see what bob has been doing all these weeks save that he had at first missed dolly sadly they were the happiest weeks his young life had known joe was so kind to him and little topsy was so happy in the companionship of jim and the chase of possums and bandicoots and kangaroo rats not to mention snakes of whom he was becoming an ardent enemy that the days grew to seem like hours and the weeks like days they worked short hours but they worked hard for all that and there were still long hours to play in which joe was perhaps the loudest and the happiest after all there are not many men who keep the feelings of boyhood until pleasant joe's age but joe was one of the happy few and he had now the happy conscience of giving a home to a homeless lad and of supplying to him the place of father and sister and mother if there was one subject more than another upon which these two conversed longer and agreed more entirely on it was the subject of their several mothers joe's memory of home had also been a sad one yet he had loved his mother with all the strength of an affectionate boyhood never desert her lad he would say for you can't repay all she did for you when you were unable to help yourself and bob would answer i will never desert poor mother joe don't be afraid if she will leave that kemp she might be better if she will come and live with me and dolly when i am a man perhaps she will be better if it wasn't because of dolly i should wish she had never married kemp for i often used to think he made poor mother worse joe thus things went on at joe's selection until came one day that our bob had cause to remember bitterly all the days of his after-life joe and he were clearing new land after finishing their fencing and started from home after a good breakfast and in one of the pleasantest days that had ever broke how they laughed and shouted to be sure as the colony of laughing jackasses in the old peppermint tree behind the hut greeted them with their absurd chorus of morning rejoicings and with what zest they tossed down their axes to join in the chase when jim and topsy started a hare and ran the poor fellow to his lair in the brush fence only to be disappointed at last their footsteps made tracks on the heavily dewed grass as though a fall of snow had lain upon it ah never again did bob follow that same way but he remembered the honest face and kindly smile of pleasant joe his true and faithful and lost friend they worked until noon and then ate their dinner under an old gaunt tree with crooked bowl great spreading limbs and scanty foliage i'll have a tough job with this chap joe said looking up as he smoked his after-dinner pipe but i guess we'll beat him afore night eh bob lad before night joe why we'll do him in an hour where do you think he'll fall joe to northward lad but we'll have to mind our p's and q's or he'll be on the fence they recommenced work refreshed and as old wright the woodcutter neared his destination for it was that day so awful at the mountain he heard the quick stroke of axes that guided him to those of whom he was in sad search all at once he saw the top of an old tree totter and tremble and then a mighty creaking preceded a crash that resounded like thunder in the forest almost with this crash came a heart-rending shriek and then wild cries for help in a youthful voice that wright knew only too well 
joe and the lad had cut the tree until the practised eye of the selector saw it only required a few more strokes to overthrow it moving out followed by bob he examined the lay of the branches with a critical eye stand well back bob he said and call the dogs with you that's an ugly branch up there he's got the heaviest share of the limb-wood and might lurch it any way but i think it will fall down the hill stand well back lad and the honest chap looked back over his shoulder with axe raised before he struck the final blow he struck it and moving slowly back to what he deemed a place of safety watched it sway and totter and quiver like a dying thing then came the creaking as the tree bent slowly at first and then as its great weight began to tell with a startling suddenness like the flicker of an expiring candle or the last throw of a dying giant bob watched it falling in the direction joe had anticipated but all at once it gave a sudden lurch and it was then that old wright heard that awful shriek ringing so terribly in the forest echoes that it was heard far far away running down the hill with a speed you would not have believed him capable of the woodcutter came upon a scene he was never likely to forget lying under one of the still quivering branches was poor joe one of the limbs lying upon his body with the horrified boy wildly trying to lift the crushing weight oh the awful face of the suffering man oh the terrible despair in the lad's eyes keep up joe the woodcutter cried i can free you in a minute and seizing an axe he rained heavy blows on the limb till at last it was cut and the released tree rolled over and lifted its deathly arm from poor dying pleasant joe alas yes but too plainly dying thank you right he gasped but it is too late and then the white face grew whiter as he fainted run down the hill to the hut lad cried right as he lifted joe's head to his knee and if there's a drop of spirits there bring it up bob never knew how he went poor unhappy boy what agony and despair was in his young heart it seemed to him that his feet were clogged with iron while in reality he flew like the wind as his panting heart told when he returned with the stimulant a little administered between the white lips and joe opened his eyes they fell first on bob's face as it bent over him my poor lad he whispered pityingly this is hard on you oh joe what shall i do what shall i do be patient my boy there are more joes in the world than one not one joe oh not one and bob's tears fell like rain on the dying man's breast come come old wright said you mustn't be giving way like this cheer up joe you're greatly better and i'm just going to bring the cart down and we'll take you to the doctor bob and me can lift you in nicely joe shook his head faintly it's too late old mate i feel it at my heart but you can do as you like give me a little more of that brandy i have something to say to you about bob when they had gratified him in this he went on brokenly i have made a will leaving the selection and what what i have saved to my lad here god bless him you will find the paper in my bunk at the hut you will see after the lad right poor lad bob and he gazed fondly into the weeping boy's face make yourself easy on that score joe old boy i will be a father to the boy if anything happens to you but 
please god you'll be a father to him yourself for many a long happy year yet are you in any pain mate i have no pain now at wright's wish bob ran once more to the hut and having brought out all the blankets fastened up the hut as well as he could then he ran back as quickly as he could with blankets the dog still bounding before him as they had done in the happy morning that now seemed so long ago to poor bob they lifted him into the cart carefully as though he had been a tender infant and he seemed like a man in a dream but with such a deathly white face it was barely a matter of two miles to the township and they drove so carefully over the grassy track that poor joe was saved the least jolt he seemed however to recognize the road and as they neared the doctor's house he made a faint motion which caused wright to pull up it's too late i feel it bob my lad don't forget your mother and and god bless you and me there was a heavy sigh and a slight movement ere good pleasant joe was gone home bob did not weep now he gazed at the face of his dead friend in an awed and stupefied way that filled honest wright's heart with pity he got down and gently drew the lad after him joe is all right now bob my boy always remember that and don't forget dolly your poor sister you are a man now and you have a home to give her will you come home to the mountain at once bob and see dolly with me bob shook his head and pointed to the cart what would you stay with him for my poor boy don't you know there will have to be an inquest and and all that you wouldn't like to see that eh the boy shuddered and permitted his friend to draw him a little away but he shook his head still as he cried i can't go i can't leave joe he has been so good to me now it was that the honest old woodcutter recognized the painful necessity of telling the boy something of the awful state of things at the mountain listen to me my poor lad he said laying his hand softly on the young shoulder you know i would not advise you wrong and you know poor joe got my promise to be a father to you if i say to you that poor dolly is in great trouble and i think you ought to go to her at once will you believe me in trouble dolly in trouble what trouble and bob lifted his swollen eyes and stared into wright's face in a trouble that will be yours too when you hear it now bob be a man i came over for you to-day on purpose mother is dead my poor lad don't you want to see her and comfort dolly mother dead and joe had with his last breath told him not to forget his mother ah poor poor mother and poor dolly he burst into a passion of tears and laid his head on wright's shoulder take me home take me home oh mother poor mother take me home take me home it was home at last when mother was dead while they had been speaking kindly hands had lifted the township's favourite from the cart and under the supervision of doctor and police laid him in the hotel as soon therefore as the horse was rested wright took bob to have a last look at his friend and the lad took the dead hand whose touch chilled him and gazed through blinding tears into the calm dead face but mother had taken joe's place and bob thought to himself awfully will mother be like that oh will she be like that alas no bob my boy poor mother was not like that 
they left the township a sad quartet for even jim and topsy who shared the cart with wright and bob seemed to know what was wrong topsy sat close to her master as if for protection on approaching the old dreaded unkind home while jim coiled himself up where his dying and dead master had lain do you doubt that he knew what a loss he had sustained when they had passed many miles the lad thinking far more of home and dolly and his dead mother than of the quiet friend he was leaving behind him he suddenly asked wright what did mother die of mr wright the boy had been thinking of that last night when he had bolted and when he had gone in to bid farewell to the sleeping woman but the question struck the woodcutter like a blow he had known all along that the truth must be told by a friend else it would fall very suddenly upon him but now how should he tell it he asked for help in the stronghold of faith ere he replied you will have to ask god to help you now my lad for i must tell you the truth and then he paused while bob's face grew white and his lips trembled poor mother was found dead and it is supposed she killed herself oh groaned bob as he hid his face in his brown hands and was dolly there poor dolly yes dolly was there my boy and now you see how much she wants you eh yes bob saw how much dolly wanted him and he did not wonder at the kind words and pitying looks that greeted him as they alighted at the mountain they whispered let dolly tell him it will come better from her what had dolly to tell him the girl clung to her brother as though she would never again loosen her grasp but she shuddered when as they sat on the following sunny morning in their old quarters on the hill he asked her about mother's death dear doll how pale you look but i suppose it's that black dress who gave it to you doll mrs comstock dolly said they have been all very good to me why won't they let me see mother the lad asked with an awe-stricken look down toward the well-known cottage around which already twos and threes of men were gathering oh the inquest bob don't you know there must be an inquest it's to be to-day they will let you see her after what does she look like dolly for he was remembering the calm face of dear dead joe as he had seen it last poor doll shuddered from head to foot for she recalled the awful form that lay on the floor as she had seen it through the chink behind her bed did you see her dolly did you see poor mother oh how awful it must have been it was not like poor joe poor mother how did she do it dolly was it the drink the lad asked it in a whisper for he thought it almost disloyal to the dead to hint at her sin oh no oh no bob her throat was cut it was dreadful oh i shall never forget it and then to the bewildered boy's astonishment the girl's face grew whiter than ashes as she laid her head heavily against him murmuring i'll be hung for you yet the child had fainted again the men were still gathering round the door of the cottage and policemen's buckles glimmered in the sun while bob sat there supporting his sister helplessly until the fresh breeze revived her and she opened her eyes as she did so mrs scanlan the woman who had taken her away from her awful home on the previous morning came quickly up the hill with a strange consequence in her manner and a hard determined face what's the matter with dolly bob poor child she's very weak get up my dear you're all right now and you must come with me 
Where? the child asked with a terrified look as the woman raised her to her feet. My dear, you must attend the inquest as a witness. I didn't like to tell you before, but you needn't be afraid, for I'll be with you. Dolly shook from head to foot and looked with her old bewildered look at the dear old mountain, but no help was there. And then she fixed her great eyes appealingly on her brother. What do you want with Dolly, Mrs. Scanlon? If she goes, I'll go. I won't leave Doll. Nonsense, Bob. Your sister has to go. But there is no necessity for you to go. Who has a better right to go? Bob asked almost angrily. Where Doll goes, I go, and that's enough about it. Seeing the lad immovable in his determination, the woman was obliged to give in, and with his sister's hand clasped close in his, Bob went down the hill. It was piteous to see the two children approaching their home, and some of the men drew back to let them pass, but one of the policemen barred their passage until some instructions from a superior permitted their entrance. The coroner was still seated at a table in the front room, but the inquest was in reality over. Evidence had been given of the woman Kemp's inebriate habits, and witnesses had been called as to the amount she had drunk on that particular day. Widgeon had related how Kemp and he had gone up to the cottage, and how he had stumbled over the dead body in the dark. The fact had been elicited that the body was not quite cold. The jury had deliberated, the verdict given. Committed suicide while in an unsound state of mind from the effects of drink. When Mrs. Scanlon and the two children of the dead woman entered the room in company with one of the constables. Kemp was standing near the table, the centre of a knot of sympathising men, when the little party entered. If it had been possible for his face to grow whiter, it would have done so. But the trial he had gone through that morning had been an awful one. Yet he set his teeth together and glared with his eyes as they fell upon the children. The constable whispered something to the coroner, who resumed the seat from which he had just risen. It appears, gentlemen of the jury, that our work is not finished. Constable Smith tells me that some fresh evidence is tendered which may give a different colouring to this painful affair. Kemp looked into the horror-stricken face of his girl, who shrank from him as if she had been struck, and then he turned one quick glance toward the door, between which and himself a policeman had quietly moved. He felt choking. The room appeared to reel around with him, the noise of many waters to be in his ears. Only for a moment, however, when a fierce rage recovered him, and— as he again glared at Dolly, his nails clenched themselves into his palms. The tendered evidence was Mrs. Scanlon's. She related how she had come to the cottage to remove Dolly from the sad vicinity, and how strangely the child had acted when her father spoke to her. When he ordered her from the room, her suspicions had been aroused, and having listened, she heard Kemp distinctly threaten the girl with her mother's death if she split on him. She had been trying to get the truth from her, but vainly and firmly believed that fright had turned the unfortunate child's brain. "'It is very sad, my girl,' the coroner said kindly. "'But it would be very wrong for you to hide anything you know about such an awful crime. Tell the jury all you know about it.' Dolly looked at the gentleman as he spoke, and then quickly into that awful face of her father. There she read such horrors that her soul shuddered within her. Do not be afraid, my child. No one shall harm you. Tell the gentleman all you know. I'll be hung for you yet. 
gasped the girl as she clasped her hand over her eyes. Kemp knew his fate was sealed. The gallows was before him. A desperate and despairing rage possessed him, and before one of the men guessed his intention, he dashed forward and struck poor Dolly a violent blow on the temple. "'Take that!' he roared as the child fell heavily on the floor. "'I've promised it to you, and you've got it!' And before he could be arrested, he dashed through the open door and down the hill with a speed, indeed, of a man flying for his life. So violent was the shock and commotion that he would undoubtedly have escaped had it not been for our brave Bob. The poor boy had listened with an awful horror to the story of his mother's murder as it fell from the lips of Mrs. Scanlon, and when Kemp struck Dolly, he had darted forward when the murderer's sudden dash to the door nearly overturned him. Bob staggered, recovered himself, looked wildly at Dolly, and then at the hill down which Kemp was almost flying, when an instinct came upon him that lent wings to his young feet. He was the first, with shouts of, "'Seize the wretch! Stop the murderer!' resounding after him, Kemp fled. But Bob was hard upon his heels. Far before the pursuing crowd, and in such a line with Kemp that the police were afraid to fire, in case of hitting the lad, Bob pursued his mother's murderer. Kemp was making for Barker's shaft, down which, could he succeed in escaping, he could set a hundred men at defiance in the great drives, and perhaps, eventually, escape up some of the many old sinkings. Everybody knew this, hence the anxiety to seize him before it was too late. He had slightly gained on his stepson, when a slight rise in the ground showed the stronger young lungs. Bob was upon him, had him by the throat, and pulled him to the ground. In a moment the wretched man was up again, trying to shake the boy off, with a volley of fierce oaths, but in vain. Bob clung to him like a leech. Panting, and with blows raining on him, the lad hung on. Should the murderer of his poor mother escape? No, a thousand times no, though he should die for it. Doubtless Kemp would have added another to the list of his crimes, but help was at hand. In another moment the murderer was seized and bound and handcuffed, and the exhausted lad raised by many hands and cheered with many approving words. "'Brave lad!' cried old Wright, as he met and wrung his hand. "'Thou hast at least avenged thy mother, and thou couldst do no more.' It was the brightest of afternoons, and the sun flooded the grand old mountain with a wreath of colouring. The breeze seemed to blow more sweetly adown it than ever, and it blew upon the white face of dying Dolly. She had begged to be carried to the old spot on the hill, and the faithful old woodcarter carried her up in his arms and held her on his knee. Bob's hand was in hers, her head upon his breast. She had lost all recollection of her father or his crime, and was thinking only of the everlasting hills to which she was going. "'I know heaven will be just like the dear old mountain, Bob,' she whispered. "'What are you crying for? Don't you like heaven?' Those were Dolly's last words. She slept home quietly as a child rocked in its cradle. Few of his age have had the unhappy experiences of our poor Bob, and they sobered him for life. Not, however, into that ascetic sobriety that makes a man a hermit or an unbeliever in the real enjoyment of life. Good old Wright went with him to live and die at the selection, and many a happy year they spent there in the society of Topsy and Jim. Ay, and the woodcutter lived to be called Grandad, and to nurse Bob's happy children on his knee, and every one of them, as they grew up, heard the story of Dolly, and Pleasant Joe, and Poor Mother.'
Never a word was said, however, about the murderer Kemp. He was hanged at Sydney, a trembling coward, and there were those who said that his last words, muttered fearfully under that awful cap, were, I'll be hung for you yet. End of story